Greetings and welcome to Inside the Master's Studio, a behind-the-screens look into the art of GMing. This week we're joined by DM Aaron. Hello. Let's get started at the very beginning. Did you start off as a player or a GM? Start off as a player very briefly. So it was back in, I think it was 2012, one of my friends kind of proposed that we run a game, or I think I might have proposed it, and he said he would do the DMing, and then a few sessions in, uh, once everybody started to kind of feel comfortable with the rules, he said he didn't want to DM anymore, and uh, I offered to pick it up, and I've kind of been doing it ever since, so like four years now. Had he been the group's go-to GM for a while, or had he just picked it up? For most of us, that was our first time ever playing any kind of tabletop role-playing stuff. He was the only one who had experience. Uh, so I guess being the slightly more veteran of all of us, he, he kind of volunteered to take it on until we can figure out how everything worked. So what was your first character? Uh, I can't even remember his name. Yeah, he didn't last very long. I mean, like I said, it was only a few sessions, uh, so I didn't have time to get really attached to him. Uh, the first character I actually played in any kind of depth was um, in a 13th age game that somebody on the forums uh, ran for us. I had a guy named Talden. He was a, a dwarf bard, and he died in lava fighting a giant dragon. If you're going to die, that's a hell of a way to go. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember your first encounter that you crafted or general storyline? The first one that we did for the local group was sort of out of a, a canned adventure sort of thing, so I didn't get to make any of those. Uh, my first time actually kind of crafting stuff would have been for our podcast that we started up, and uh, that was the party all sort of not really meeting each other per se, but they all ended up in an arena um, in this town, and then a huge fight broke out. Some bad guys revealed themselves, and then... Uh, everybody kind of started working together at that point. I had a plan for the newly revealed big bad evil guy to get away on uh, a giant eagle that he summoned. And then one of the party members was like, hey, can I shoot that out of the air? I wanted to say no, but I was like, no, this will probably be way cooler if, if they do. So, uh, you know, we rolled and he, he killed the bird in one shot. And then the big bad evil guy fell to the ground like 80 feet and... um was paralyzed, and then I had to kind of throw my entire plan out the window. Well, I guess it's good that that happened early. They've been surprising me at every turn, so, you know, we, we've built that ex uh, expectation at this point. Do you feel like a GM should start off with a paint-by-numbers out-of-the-book adventure? Um, It really depends on, I think, how comfortable you are um, bouncing ideas off of people and working with them. Like, I feel like a lot of the world building stuff should be collaboration. If nothing else, you could always use it for pulling ideas for encounters or little plot lines to work into your stuff. So I'd say whatever you feel more comfortable with, really. Where do you get your ideas for encounters? Kind of from everywhere. There's a lot of live play D&D podcasts that I listen to, uh, like Friends at the Table, uh, The Adventure Zone. I used to listen to one called uh, Critical Hit, I think it was. You know, every now and then I'll get a cool idea for like a little sequence or I'll, I'll twist it in some way to to kind of um, work it into the what we're doing. Or uh, every now and then I'll I'll be listening to something else um, like the lore podcast has a bunch of cool, you know, events in history or I'll read um, a novel and it's got a cool monster in it. And I'm like, well, if I tweaked it like this, it would work pretty well with 
where they're going to head next. So it's kind of a grab from pretty much everywhere, really. Do you feel that listening to other people GM influences your GMing? I do. Uh, I feel like at first I was a lot more railroady, even though I tried not to be. And then uh, listening to friends at the table and kind of the way Austin interacts with uh, his cast, it kind of changed the way I run things. And also, once we switched to Dungeon World, I feel like that helped a lot because it it relies a lot more on uh, the players kind of helping flesh out the world and the locations and kind of their backstories to, to make everything feel more alive, I guess. Do you feel like there's a natural progression from Dungeons and Dragons to the other systems like Dungeon World or 13th Age? I kind of think it depends on what part of the experience you like more. Um, if you're into like, you know, the nitty gritty tactics part of it, there's uh, some game systems that work better with that. If you're more into the narrative part, I feel like 13th Age and Dungeon World and those kind of games do that a little bit better. Um, they're a little bit more, I guess, free flowing. And uh, that's kind of the thing that I like more, so we've been gravitating more towards uh, those kind of games. Is there anything from Dungeons & Dragons that you've brought over to the other game systems? Hmm. Not really. Nothing I can think of off the top of my head. We mostly play kind of just with the rules as written for the system. I think we may have had a few of the like the skill challenges thing where you know you have to get X amount of successes before X amount of failures that I don't think is really listed in any of the other um, systems that we've looked at. Uh, and I feel like that kind of works a little bit better than the hard you either pass or you fail kind of metric. So that might have been one that I've uh, pulled from. So when you're getting a group together to start a new campaign... Do you let them roll whatever they want, or do you try to guide them and suggest the party composition? For the most part, we'll let people roll whatever they want. If there's any kind of um, extra material we need to get, like books with extra races or extra classes or anything, we'll we'll kind of talk that out beforehand. But uh, usually before we start a campaign, I try to get a couple hours where we get everybody together. Um, and before anybody actually has a solid pick on a character or a class or anything like that, we'll kind of talk it out, um, figure out a little bit about the world, and then see what kind of characters fit best in that. And we'll kind of you know, adjust the world accordingly to make those uh, characters seem special. Um, and I think it kind of off the bat helps make the players feel a little bit more involved in everything since they're kind of fleshing out the world and, and that sort of thing. Has one of these sessions ever completely changed what you had in mind for the game? The Dungeon World campaign, I had some ideas for how it was going to go, and then like, I basically decided uh, the way we have it set up is uh, after the 4th edition campaign ends, we've got a period of about 3,000 years before our Dungeon World campaign picks up. It's kind of in the same world, except there's been a bunch of battles between the gods, and uh, pretty much everybody doesn't believe in the gods anymore, or they're actively hostile towards the idea of them just because they're kind of the reason that uh, the world is so ruined. Um, and then a couple of the players decided they still wanted to be uh, adherents to some god or another. So instead of them existing in this random town, I kind of made it, uh, we, we figured it out to where they were living in sort of the last bastion of religious people in the world. Uh, and they were trying to kind of spread the faith around, which which changed the way the, the campaign started, and it's kind of helped steer in a different direction than I thought it was going to go, for sure. 
were the holdouts of believers in your party of a uh, divine nature? Uh, yeah, one is a cleric and one is a paladin. And funny enough, um, so at the end of the fourth edition campaign, uh, three of the players ended up taking the mantles of different gods that died in the process. Two of the players basically are worshippers of each other's gods, or worshippers of the god that came out of the person that they played in the previous campaign. So, like, person A in Dungeon World is a follower of person B from 4th edition's god, and that sort of thing. So, uh, it kind of helps to have a little bit of weird interplay between the two of them and they'll kind of stop for a second sometimes and be like hey so if your character uh as a god would would they be cool with me doing this or would that kind of you know get me some no-no points and that sort of thing so uh it kind of helps give a little bit more interaction so with the no-no points is that something you keep track of and threaten them losing their divine gifts not so much anything that severe you know, sometimes they'll have a move where they'll ask on, uh, they'll pray for a minute and they'll ask their god for guidance or something. If they roll really low, I'll be like, well, you know, all these ev- uh, events that transpired where you kind of went out of the realm of your religion, you kind of have little flashes of those and you realize maybe the reason you're not getting an answer is uh, you're not on, you know, your god's good side at the moment, that sort of thing. And for the non-religious characters... Do you hold them to their alignment? Yeah, for the most part. Um, The thing I like about the dungeon world system is you actually get, uh, at the end of a session, um, you go through and if you play to your alignment, and the alignment has completely different um, meanings for each each class, uh, but if you play to your alignment, you get XP for it. So, like... For the wizard, if you are evil, then you're using your magic to cause fear, whereas like if you're a barbarian, uh, your, your evil alignment may lead you to do something completely different. Personally, I'm used to more Dungeons and Dragons situations. Mm-hmm. In a game like that, do you hold people to alignments? Do you think it's important in Dungeons and Dragons? It's a little bit important, at least, just for, you know, you want to make decisions that would be realistic for the character as you've set them up. So, I I mean, I think it's in everybody's best interest to sort of play to those at least a little bit. But for a lot of them, it feels like if, you know, they're not playing to their alignment, they're not going to get the XP, and they're all really trying hard to level up and get that new shiny move. So they've done a really good job of playing their characters as they've created them. One of the first places I actually heard you GMing was on your podcast. How long has that been going on? May 19th of 2014, so we're on almost two and a half years now. Is there any difficulty keeping players invested in a game that's gone on that long? (sighs) Yeah, there's definitely been some sessions where you could tell people, you know, they're either feeling burnt out or uh, they're just not feeling this little campaign arc or something like that. Uh, So sometimes it's been a little bit hard to try to, you know, pull people back on track, I guess you could say. I try to, at the end of sessions, if I've noticed somebody, you know, doesn't seem very interested in what's going on, I'll um, I'll message them after the session and try to work with them and see, is there anything that would your character would like to do at this point that maybe they're not getting the chance to, or, or something that'll kind of help pull them back into the fold. What's the process like building a scenario in Dungeon World versus Dungeons & Dragons? 
I kind of like it because there's no huge insurmountable numbers that you have to worry about. The player's handbook uh, has a big section of all the different monsters and stuff that, you know, you can pull from there. You could reskin them as you see fit. But uh, I think like the most powerful creature in the game only has like 40 HP or something like that. I mean, he's got a ton of armor, so he's hard to hit. But um, pretty much everything, if you can get lucky enough, I guess, is is a challenge that you can overcome. Um, so it's mostly about uh, just trying to find, I don't know, something that's interesting for them to, to go through and then filling it full of appropriate monsters, I suppose. Do you prefer that system to 4th edition? Yeah, I feel like I never really got the hang of making the encounters for 4th edition. Uh, there was a uh, Wizards of the Coast... It was like I think it was the D and D insider that we had access to, um, and you can, you know, kind of tell at what level you were, how many people you had, and it would randomly roll you some encounters. Which I mean, it worked mechanically, but it I don't know. It felt kind of uh, not as fun. How do you feel about puzzles? I love them, and the thing that kills me about making or putting puzzles in there um, is that there's some things where it's like, okay, they'll have this done in 10 seconds, um, and, you know, it's the, one of the things where they end up, oh, we need to investigate the suit of armor that was in the hallway that we walked into before we got to the puzzle, and they worry about the suit of armor for half an hour, and then there's some, you're like, oh, well, this is going to take on the rest of the episode, I don't have to worry about figuring out anything after that, and they walk in, and they're like, nope, it's this one right over here, and you're like, well, shit. Is there anything you feel like a new GM should do when trying to construct a puzzle? One of the things you probably want to do before you set the puzzle loose on the players is maybe hand it to somebody who's not playing in the game and see how it works as sort of an independent thing. Um, Because it's one of the things where you get so used to trying to figure things out from your you know, your mindset, the way you solve things, that that may be a thought process that is completely alien to everybody else. And, you know, you don't want to make them feel completely helpless um, or anything like that. And if if you can't do that, maybe just have a few a few things they could find. Maybe, uh, you know, somebody scratched a hint somewhere or there's a journal they can come across that maybe the, the person who is building the trap put down. So it's a little reminder about a, a hidden lever or something just different ways to solve a problem have those in there if you can now earlier you had mentioned getting xp as reward for going with your uh, alignment yes do you track xp as it is intended or do you just have characters level up as you feel they should in fourth edition i tended to just level them up when i felt it was appropriate uh, we never really tracked XP that much. Uh, in Dungeon World, uh, leveling up doesn't really give you a whole lot of a mechanical advantage against anybody else. It just gives you a few more tricks uh, you can use, really. Basically, every time you level up, you get to pick a new move, uh, which th- those are basically things you could use at any time. Of course, the spellcasters will get uh, like a new spell or something like that. But um, there's so many ways to earn XP in Dungeon World, and... I don't think any of them are actually from killing monsters. Like, you get XP for, for failing a roll, or um, for learning new things about the world, or for 
defeating it. Okay, so if you kill a notable enemy, then you get XP. But like the regular minions and stuff you come across, they I guess you don't learn anything from them, so you can't grow as a character. But I mean, there's so many other ways to get XP that uh, we usually play that one as laid out in the rule book. When you're developing a world, do you prefer to journal, keep it in your head? How do you keep track of what you have planned? Oh, um, most of the time I've got a giant Google Drive folder that only I can see where I've got like an idea document where it's just stuff I hear or stuff I think about that I'll write down. And then as I flesh it out more, I'll move it to its own little specific document. A lot of times I'll try to reach out to some of the players and see if they have any ideas on, you know, what would be cool to do here or, hey, this is an area near where your character used to live. Is there anything cool in the area? Uh, you know, that sort of thing. So I can kind of help build it out a little bit. Are there any particular callbacks to prior games that you enjoy the most? The current big bad evil guy that is threatening the party in the dungeon world campaign uh it's basically a war forge that has survived for the three thousand years since the 4e campaign and he's kind of become bitter and evil and hates anything that represents the gods that abandoned him and all that sort of stuff seeing the party slowly realize who it was was uh was a lot of fun is his name bender <laughs> no uh his new name is the Crimson Sigil, because he has a giant burning handprint on his chest. Do you have a favorite NPC? Hmm. I've got a couple. Uh, there was one in the 4th edition campaign. Her name was Ravast, and uh, the running joke, like, I did it once, and they kind of expected it after that, was she always had, like, food. Whenever they came across her, she was always eating. Um, and then eventually, uh, in the game lore, she became the person who invented the sandwich, but it's called a Ravast in that world now. Um, and then in the Dungeon World campaign, the, uh, the bad evil guy, the Crimson Sigil is fun. And they also came across, uh, this character Dalton, um, in the temple to the goddess of the forge. And basically, uh, he's a crazy tinkerer guy who makes explosives and has very few fingers left. And uh, he was fun because he was really uh, excited about letting them blow things up. Were all of these characters that you had planned in advance? Sort of. Dalton definitely wasn't. Uh, the Crimson Sigil was one that I'd kind of been working on. Ravistine was... She had kind of been intended to start off as like a really minor character who got one of the characters into the town. Um, and then she ended up sticking around because people kept going back to her for, for info or jobs. So she ended up getting more airtime than I thought she would. When you're creating an NPC, where do you start? It kind of depends on, I guess, how long I think they'll be relevant to the story there's a few that i'll just put down a name and some general characteristics and call it good um, and then there's some that if i plan on them being around for a while i'll have uh, i'll think of a description and then i'll try to think of a name that'll fit the description and then kind of some mannerisms and and uh like a general uh disposition and that sort of thing when you are interacting with your players as the npcs do you do a voice Sometimes I find that a lot of like listening back, a lot of the voices I do sound really similar to my own voice. Uh, there's a few that are uh, different enough uh, to be notable. 
it's it's one of those things where I try and then sometimes they'll pop back up and I'll forget what they sounded like originally and I'll, I'll mess it up. So a lot of times now it's just kind of my regular voice. Are there any NPCs that you'd like to bring out? <laughs> um, Dalton's kind of fun. Uh, he hurts to do for, for too long, but uh, we can give it a shot. Hello, Dalton. How you doing? What's been your latest interaction with the party? Oh, uh, well, they came over to the uh, the temple and I, I showed them how to make all these, these uh, fun toys, let's call them. Sound pretty scratchy. Have you been uh, inhaling some hazardous chemicals lately? Well, you know, when you work around gunpowder, uh, either your lungs or your fingers are the first to go, and I've got a little problem with both, I guess. And when you're a GM, it's your voice that's first to go. (laughs) (coughs) Yeah. Exhibit A. Yeah. (laughs) When it comes to off-the-cuff NPCs, how do you name them? Because that's something I personally have trouble with. So one of the things I've done that's helped me a lot is uh, I've gone through and kind of made a name bank. And when an NPC comes up and they want to get the person's name, I I, I scroll down the bank uh, and find one that looks like it fits. And then that's their name now. And I just cross it off. Pretty sensible. Yeah. Or you have the case where um, I get put in a spot and I can't get the name bank to pull up and I make one up. Like our hunter came across uh, a guy who was impersonating a town guardsman. And she was talking to him she's like oh i haven't seen you around here before what's your name and i couldn't think of anything so i just said craigery and there was a question in my voice when i said it and then everybody was like wait what the hell this guy doesn't sound trustworthy so i just kind of went with it and he was like the worst infiltrator ever and uh that was fun have you ever saved npcs that should have died but you like them too much i've been tempted to but i figure if I don't know. It's it, it seems like it would cheapen the thing if there was a situation where they should have died and then for some reason they magically got away on a flying eagle for some reason that could have been completely shot down or something like that. So uh, usually I'll just let the dice go as they roll. How about for your players? I may have accidentally made some encounters way too hard and fudged some damage numbers a little bit. So the point still gets across, but maybe there's no funerals that need to be planned. How do you make an encounter or a story where the players feel like they're in control, but not to the point where they don't feel challenged? I think that's kind of one of the things where occasionally you want to have something that's a little bit or a lot harder than uh, they would be expecting. And kind of keeps them on their toes when they realize, oh, crap, we're not invincible. We could have died here if we didn't have our, you know, our A game. Or uh, just show them that they're not immune from the laws. We had um, a recent instance where the barbarian beat someone to death in the middle of town. And he actually had to go on trial for it. And he got found guilty and he was executed for it. That was kind of a an interesting thing, trying to draft up a legal system. But um, it definitely got the point across to everybody that uh, just because you're an adventurer doesn't mean you have carte blanche to do whatever you want. I'm kind of hoping one of the lawyers was a simple folksy lawyer (laughs) who doesn't understand all this big city talk. Uh, Sort of. Um, 
So actually, uh, I reached out to to Austin Walker, the the guy from Friends at the Table, and he had done a similar thing under different circumstances, but they had a Dungeon World campaign, and he was actually really awesome. He walked me through the process. He went through, kind of threw some ideas back and forth, and uh, he helped me a whole lot with getting that figured out. But one of the things we ended up doing was both the prosecution and the defense attorneys had to be people that the defendant knew. So basically the cleric and the paladin uh, of the party ended up being the two attorneys. Is this on a particular episode? Uh, that was over the course of several episodes. Um, I'm trying to think. Hold on. let me. How tempting was it to pipe in the law and order? Junk, junk? <laughs> uh, very much. Like if I could find a knockoff of the law and order done, done sound effect, I, I probably would have piped it in. It was one of those things where work internet blocked it. So uh, I, I had to work with what I had, but it looks like it was episodes uh, 20 to 23 on our dungeon world campaign. So they're the relatively recent postings. Does your party have a home base or a hometown? Uh, so their hometown is the, the one I was talking about. It's called First Conquest. Basically, a small army of religious folks got together and they took over a seaside town. As far as they knew, it was the only town in the world with like a wall around it. So they feel like they're you know defended. They all have their own little houses, either in the town or right outside the walls that they... You know, they live in, but on occasion they'll they'll regroup at somebody's house or all spend the night while they're trying to figure stuff out. How do you start building a city? That part was kind of a pain. Um, usually I'll try to look online for just like city maps for stuff, and then I'll find one that kind of fits what I'm looking for uh, as far as like location and size and that sort of thing. Um, and then I'll I'll print it out and I'll start putting little symbols on it and uh, taking notes as to you know this is probably the area where all the merchants are and this is probably where the main cathedral is and this is probably where the um, you know the trials are held and that sort of thing and it kind of helps um, figure out where the party needs to go for certain things. When you are playing, is it mostly through Skype nowadays? Uh, we do all of our stuff through Google Hangouts. Um, it's got Roll20 integration built in, and um, I don't know if you've ever messed with it, but Roll20 is fantastic. Uh, you have basically a giant shared tabletop uh, with like a grid. You can all see the same map. You can move tokens around. Uh, it's got a built-in chat box and uh, like dice roller. Uh, so as far as uh, you know, recreating the D&D &D experience remotely, that's um, the best one that we've found so far. Also, it's free. Does everyone have a camera, or are some people audio only? One of our guys is audio only. Um, as long as you've got a microphone, that's really the only thing we care about. Uh, being able to see everybody else's faces and, and reactions to stuff is, is fun, but it's definitely not mandatory. Would you rather GM for griffin and austin or would you rather have them gm for you crap that's a really hard question i feel like they're probably better at it so dming for them would probably be beneficial because they could give me pointers but 
I feel like playing in their games would probably be more fun. How would you rate a GM as better than another GM? I don't know. <laughs> they just, uh, I don't know, they seem more confident or, I don't know, comfortable with the rule set. Uh, it's, it seems like they've got things planned out better than I do. Uh, I don't know. With what I see on uh, the internet, most of the time people are complaining that they're not following the rules completely. Yeah, but I mean, that's one of the things where if you sign up to, to play with a DM, you know, if you go over it at the beginning and says, okay, hey, we're going to have some house rules, or we're going to play things a little bit differently than the way it is in the book. As long as the players are okay with it, then that's the thing that matters. I mean, you know, you have to realize if you're listening to something else somebody made that, you know, they probably did it in the way that they're more comfortable doing it. So it's kind of whatever works for them. Have you ever gotten any rules lawyer hate mail? I'm surprised that we haven't. There was one person who corrected us at one point. Um, about, I think it was some move being used incorrectly in Dungeon World, but by the time that episode had come out, we, we tried to have like a buffer, so I had realized, or somebody had realized it and pointed it out, and we had changed the way we did it, so uh, they were letting us know about a thing that had already been corrected, which felt kind of good. How about fan mail? We've gotten a few of those. Um, it's always nice to hear from people who, you know, like the work that we put out. And uh, we started up a Patreon recently. And uh, the support that we've gotten from people has been more than we had expected. And it's just kind of constantly amazing me whenever we get another donator that, you know, people like listening to the stuff that comes out of our faces enough to, like, support us financially. It, it just kind of blows my mind. What kind of things does having a Patreon unlock for you? Until then, I was kind of paying for all the bills out of my own pocket. So like web hosting, and then uh, we have an Amazon Web Services account, I think it is, where uh, that's what we use to deliver all of our audio to people since it's like really dependable. Um, and it's kind of helped pay for all of our subscriptions to stuff, which means that we can spend the money buying uh, new rule books or buying extra copies of some games on Steam and running like little community game nights with people, which have been a lot of fun. And it kind of lets us um, open up, you know, just being able to do more stuff that we didn't have the money for previously. Had you ever considered making extra content available based off that? We had kind of talked about it at the beginning, um, and the pretty much unanimous consensus was we didn't want to lock anything behind a paywall. If you subscribe, or you know, if you, if you back us on Patreon, uh, like we'll record like personalized thank yous, and you get um, we'll we'll get your picture and put it on a little special spot on the website. Um, and if we, whenever we open up signups for a listener campaign, uh, you get extra entries if you want to join and play along with us. Aside from that, like there's no extra episodes or anything that you're gonna miss if you don't donate to us because we never wanted it to feel like a mandatory thing to be able to get the full experience, I guess. How do you plan for a listener session as opposed to one of your player sessions? Usually I try to kind of feel out how everybody works together on that initial episode where we uh, make the characters and everything. And kind of based on who plays well off of each other, I'll try to tie some some storylines between those people so they have at least one person to interact with. And I feel like 
like I think a lot of these people this is their first you know time being on a podcast probably so it kind of helps get the the jitters out I guess and once they're feeling a little bit more comfortable I find that uh, for the most part everybody just tends to to mesh well together so uh, that little bit of a push kind of helps smooth everything else out after that do you have any exercises if you will to help get the jitters out for new players um if there's anybody who's you know super nervous we've got a few little one-on-one rpgs that i've got that you know i'll pull them along to the side real quick uh not not real quick because they you know take like an hour or so but before we do the session i can uh, set up a time to uh, run through a little thing with them so they get more used to you know just being on the microphone on camera you know, thinking out loud so where other people can contribute and, and help out. Do you have to give them any sort of warning that when they hear their voice, they're not going to like it? <laughs> I haven't had to give anybody that warning, but I think I've said it enough on the podcast to where they realize that's kind of a a given. Because that, that's pretty much universal from everybody I've talked to who does a podcast. It's like after a couple of years, you're like, hey, I'm finally at the spot where I don't loathe the sound of my own voice anymore. Do these listener sessions take the place of your main campaign um as far as scheduling goes kind of will um we've got the dungeon world campaign going right now and we've got uh, a star wars campaign that another member of the cast is is dming for um and we try to alternate weekends so usually it'll be we'll swap out one of the dungeon world campaigns for the listener campaign uh, but I try to make it so where the the listener campaign, it's usually only like three or four sessions, but it's tied to the ongoing campaign in some way. It's not usually immediately evident, but it could be they're from like a nearby town and they end up coming across the party and then we'll have some weird like joint episode. Or in this one, um, I'm trying to work it out to where uh, it'll kind of help determine what state the one of the towns that the party is eventually going to come across will be in, and it'll kind of help shape a lot of how the interactions in that place will go. How do you balance the need for campaign momentum versus player fatigue? That's been kind of one of the harder things to do, uh, because there's some folks who are completely content to uh, just kind of dig in in one little town and spend several episodes there just kind of farting around. And there's some people who want to kind of have like, you know, bullet point list. I have to go here. I have to do this. I have to talk to this person. So if I find that, that things are kind of dragging on a bit, I'll try to uh, nudge them to doing something. But uh, for the most part, they've been communicative enough with each other to where that hasn't really become much of an issue. In the example of, say, that barbarian killing somebody in the middle of town. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it was provoked, righteously, of course. (laughs) But do you have any subject matter that is expressly off-limits? Have you let the players know what's off-limits? Yeah, that's that's one of the things we haven't... We haven't really had, like, a sit-down talk about it. I want to say at one point we said, you know, if we ever get to a subject that's uh, something you're you're not cool, you know, playing. Uh, let me know, and we'll we will change it in some way. Now to think about it, I probably should sit down and talk to everybody about that again, just so we make sure we're all on the same page. Up to this point, we've never really um, come across anything that's been 
uh like you know a definite no from from anybody have you ever had that experience as a gm <sighs> or a time where you felt you had to kind of correct a player's actions there we haven't had anything like that there have been some times i've had to give a player in our our local game a few years back a little slap on the wrist um it was his first time playing D&D and he was the the stereotypical rogue who can't not steal something that's not nailed down um so he started you know attracting some heat and uh, shortly before the campaign broke up the uh, local thieves guild had actually sent some people out to have a word with him and he was in the process of uh they were about to to get him and then I think we never ended up having that next session which is kind of a bummer because I, I was curious to see how that was going to shake out. If somebody's having a hard time with a GM, how do you feel that's best taken care of? Hopefully you're in the kind of game where if you're having a problem with the GM, you can talk to them about whatever you're having a problem with. Or uh, if for some reason they're not receptive to uh, you know, talking to you about... I mean, the campaign is it requires, you know effort from everybody so you hope that they would be receptive to listening to any kind of comments or concerns you may have i mean if if you can't get a word in with them i'd say talk to the players and if at that point you know things still aren't resolved uh, i guess you have to make a decision whether it's something that's bothering you enough to stop playing the game you don't owe anybody your time so if you feel like it's not working out then you know, you can always say, hey, this isn't working out. I'm I'm going to stop playing. And, I mean, hopefully people can, can respect that. After you've concluded a session, do you have any sort of cool down or post-game recap? Usually after we finish recording, uh, we'll have just a few minutes where we, you know, talk about how the session went, that sort of thing. Um, and then after we finish the Google Hangout completely, I... I usually have to go play PlayStation and de-stress a little bit because for some reason, even after all this time, every episode I get nervous as hell before we record. How do you handle GM fatigue? Usually if if I find myself getting a little bit burnt out, you know, we, we'll try to run like a, a small little one shot or something like that just so I can roll some dice and play one character instead of like a town. I haven't run into that too much, thankfully. Usually just a temporary little uh, shift to uh, let somebody else run for a week uh, on a different game rule set. Or um, maybe instead of playing that weekend, just do something else. We'll have weekends where we'll all get on Steam and just, just play some random game, like a little co-op game, to get everybody working together. That sort of thing's fun for blowing off Steam and kind of helping reset a little bit. Have any of the events or items within your game inspired you to try to recreate them like a map um i was actually able to reach out to somebody on the forums um and they helped make like a really awesome map for the world for our current campaign that we're doing um would their name be enc yep i'm looking at a framed poster on my wall right now <laughs> of a game world <laughs> He does really great work. I think it's him. They do really great work, let's say. Um, That's true. 
one of the things I've I've kind of tossed around the idea of is if I were to get a local campaign together again, I would kind of want to, you know, take the extra time and make some of those things like torn up map or like a key or some some coins for the you know the area that sort of thing just so it's a little physical representation of the stuff in the game but since we play mostly online it kind of removes that a little bit one of the things roll 20 has is uh handouts so you can get a picture or a document or something you can share it with the players um so sometimes if i have a little bit of extra time I'll make up a, a fancy scroll or I'll actually draw up the ledger that they find, uh, you know, and have all the different entries and stuff in it so I can show that to them. I guess that's the way I can pull a bit of extra time into making things. If cost were no issue, what's the one item from a world you've GM that you wish you could have? There was this cool crown that had a bunch of gems in it and you could pull some money soul out and store it in the crown and... Depending on the number you had, you had this crazy power. I can't remember what the powers were, but they were they were a bit imbalanced, but they involved, you know, kind of doing evil and ripping people's souls out. So that was kind of fun. Are you planning on ripping anyone's souls out with it? No, but I mean, it's good to be prepared. We are going to start wrapping up. All right. But before we do, I must ask you questions. From the Pivo questionnaire, pioneered by Bernard Pivo, shamelessly stolen by myself, <laughs> as is the true GM way. Exactly. You didn't steal it. You borrowed it. Uh, I was inspired by it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. What is your favorite word? I really like the word translucent, and I don't know why. It just sounds good. What is your least favorite word? Sticky. Any particular reason? I immediately associate it with things being sticky, and that's like my least favorite sensation in the world, so it's the worst word. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? The unexpected, mostly. Having something completely out of left field that you would have never expected in a million years that just seems to work way better than anything you could have predicted is kind of awesome. Do you think that's why you prefer to GM? Maybe so. I like trying to surprise other people. And then uh, one of my favorite things is just kind of listening in to when the party has their paranoid brainstorming as to what could be around the corner. And it's way better than what I could have thought. And then I will immediately um, borrow that. And then they feel like they're super smart because they figured it out. And I feel awesome because they feel awesome. And then I have a way cooler thing than the thing that I thought. Do you prefer when they come up with something crazy rather than when they connect the dots as you place them? Both have, both have their place, I guess. I kind of like it when, when they're able to piece together like the things I was doing, because it means I was, I guess, hinting at things properly, which means you know they could have Batmaned it and put it all together. Uh, but sometimes even when they do that, and then somebody else is like, yeah, but what if he's also a lizard? And you're like, yeah, what if he is also a lizard? So the reptilians are real. Maybe. I'm not sure who's listening, so um, there's no conclusive evidence. 
If the answer is yes, blink with both <laughs> sets of eyelids. There you go. Uh, what turns you off? The thing I hate the most is, regardless of whether you're, you're watching something or listening to it, is you can just kind of feel sometimes when somebody's phoning it in and there's nothing that'll make me stop paying attention to a thing more than uh, the feeling that the person who is wanting you to listen or watch the thing doesn't give a crap about it. What is your favorite curse word to hear from your players? Usually, oh shit, because that either means they figured it out or, oh god, what is this thing that we're being confronted with? What sound or noise do you love? Ticking, like like a clock ticking. I don't know why. What sound or noise do you hate? Really anything, just anything high-pitched. It it seems like it drives right into my brain and it gives me a headache pretty quickly, so not a fan of any of those. What game system would you like to attempt? There is a game system that it might still be in beta. I don't know. Um, it's called Blades in the Dark. Um, I really want to try either DMing it or, or playing it. I don't really care which, but uh, basically you and the rest of the party play uh, kind of like a fledgling gang in this weird techno-magic-y kind of world. And uh, as the party levels up, like the gang levels up, and then you end up, uh, you can have these big crazy turf wars and like steal territory from other gangs. And um, I don't know, it seems pretty rad. Was this inspired by Friends at the Table? I had seen some things about it, and then... I was like, hey, we should do this. And then they started the campaign, and I was like, well, great. Now I'm going to seem like more of a copycat. But it seems cool enough to where I kind of don't care. (laughs) (laughs) What game system would you absolutely not like to attempt? I've heard some people describing some, and for the life of me, I can't remember the name of them, which kind of I should look up so it's not something that somebody can spring on me. But there's somewhere, you know, just the character creation alone takes like, you know, four or five hours and then there's like anything where everything gets into like super heavy detail rulesy rules about everything uh, i find i like to play a little a little bit more fast and loose than than some game systems will allow uh so kind of the ones that lead way too heavily into uh intricate rules about every single thing uh kind of turn me off a little bit is that part of the reason why you have moved away from dungeons? I think so, a little bit. Um, Another part of the reason is uh, when I got everybody to sign up for the podcast, uh, some of them were not fans of Dungeons & Dragons by any means, and it was kind of, hey, we'll stick along um, as long as this isn't the only thing we're ever going to do. And then um, after checking out some of the other you know, game systems, we found that those worked better for the group as a whole. So uh, that kind of facilitated our move over to those. When your game concludes, what would you like to hear from your players? Hopefully, uh, like, that was awesome, or I was not expecting that. And then theorizing on, you know, where things can go from there. Because uh, that means they're invested enough to keep on playing. I say GM is nothing without players. Mm-hmm. And I really like the group we've gotten together. So the longer I can keep them together and playing, the the better. So where can people go to listen to this group? 
Uh, you can go to thatdndpodcast.com. Uh, it's D, the letter N, and then D, because uh, ampersands don't work on Twitter, so we, we kind of D and D through everything. So uh, We also put out links to the posts, or to the new episodes on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash thatdndpodcast, and uh, Twitter at, at thatdndpodcast. Would you recommend people start from episode one? Or do you think there's a better starting point? If you go to the website, we've got it broken down by campaign. I would recommend the beginning. Um, if you're starting on the Dungeon World campaign, if you're starting on the fourth edition campaign, I would say skip the prequel episodes. Uh, the audio was pretty rough on those um, and start at like maybe episode two or three. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a lot of fun. I've been your host, Moon Rules, and remember, if they're not paranoid, you're doing it wrong. Mm-hmm.